Hey everybody, welcome to Encuentro. Uh, I've been away for almost six weeks now, I believe. Uh, I've been dealing with uh, symptoms of uh, long-haul COVID, as uh, uh, most of you know. Uh, biggest problem uh, has been, of course, you know, uh, heart, kidneys, and and uh, my throat, which uh, constantly gives me problems. But it is Lent, and um, it is a good time to uh, hopefully, and that's what I'm going to try to do, uh, revive the uh, podcasts. So let's begin with the prayer of St. Francis, as we've always done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, make me a means of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, let me bring joy. Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled, but to console. Not so much to be understood, but to understand so much to be loved, but to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in forgiving that we are forgiven, and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. There's so much that's been said lately about power, the desire for it, its abuse, it's being wielded by the wrong persons. And I'm not just talking about the things that have seemingly been ripping our society apart since the beginning of the election campaign season. I'm also talking about the suffering that's being inflicted on innocent people, especially children on the other side of the planet, you know, where everyone's talking about firepower, you know, the inordinate use of it to kill people and on the other hand, the need to supply it so that uh, the innocent could defend themselves. Since it's Lent, you know, I myself have been reflecting on, on the idea of power. You know, beginning with the rejection of Jesus, Jesus' rejection of power in, in the desert. You know, when Satan entices him with power as a way of getting his mission done more quickly, you know, in what uh, the devil believed and insisted would have been a far easier way to accomplish uh, his work. Um, Jesus said no, you know. He flat out said no. Wouldn't have been easier had Jesus simply revealed himself and his awesome power <clears throat> from the very start. Uh, in a way, that's what the devil was trying to, to tell him, you know. Um, why give yourself a hard time when there's an easier way of doing it? Just reveal yourself. <clears throat> Wouldn't it have been easier for God to do that from the very start? You know, to reveal that he had in fact sent his son to save the world. Instead, you know, he, he sent his son to be born in a manger to poor parents. Um, why did God allow his son to be maligned? throughout his life and ministry by the very people that he came to save. <clears throat> um, why allow his son to suffer and die? Uh, why not send battalions of angels to save his son while he hung dying on the cross? He could have easily done so. Uh, 
In fact, those who were insulting Jesus as he hung on the cross said precisely that. Let's see if his father, you know, will come and save him. So why didn't he? Do you realize what I have done for you? Jesus says to his disciples, you call me teacher and master, then rightly so, for indeed I am. If I therefore, the master and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash wash one another's feet. I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you also should do. Jesus, who emptied himself and took the form of a slave, as we are told in uh, Philippians 2 verse 7, commanded his disciples to speak, not the language of power, but the language of service. In fact, service was the only name he wished his disciples to call the power that he was giving them and that they were to exercise. If anyone wishes to be first, he says to them, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. No, this wasn't power for the sake of service. It wasn't service exercised in and through power. There was to be no power interpretation here. No ambiguity in Jesus' command. As I have done for you, he says, you also should do. Jesus wished his disciples to serve not lord it over one another. And yet, understanding of what he was trying to teach didn't come easy to any of them. Not to James and John, who wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left. Not for the other disciples who argued who was the greatest among them. And certainly not for Peter, who at one point was even called Satan by Jesus himself because of his misunderstanding of power. What about Judas? You know, perhaps the most intelligent of the disciples. He was the group's treasurer. He knew money. He's probably good at math. Some scholars have argued that Judas most likely knew in his heart of hearts that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. More than any in Jesus' inner circle, he was the one who was most convinced that his carpenter was indeed a savior that Israel was waiting for. Why otherwise would such a bright and clever man choose to follow a nobody like Jesus? But more than any disciple as well, Judas was the one who not only failed to understand the kind of power that Jesus preached, he was also the one who refused to understand it in the way Jesus understood it and wanted them to understand it. And so Judas began his effort to qualify and modify, at least in his mind and in his heart, Jesus' message, according to his own interpretation. In fact, it was Judas's belief in what had become for him a distorted understanding of Jesus' version of power that some scholars tell us led him to commit that fatal mistake. We mustn't imagine Judas' betrayal as a mere act of hatred towards Jesus, even if that might seem logical, 
given the rebuke he receives from Jesus earlier on in the Gospels. It is rather very possible, some scholars tell us, that Judas, realizing, because he was clever, that Jesus would never go the route of power as he, Judas, understood it, decided to resort to something more drastic, something that in his mind would force the hand of God to reveal to the world once and for all that Jesus was his son, the all-powerful Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. This was the calculation. Again, you know, this is a scholarly opinion, but it's a fascinating one. And this was the calculation. If an act of betrayal would cause God's only begotten son to suffer in the hands of the unrighteous, and if that would lead to the Almighty coming down with all his might and fury at the tormentors of his son, then Judas was willing to take the chance and betray Christ. Anything to once and for all show to the world the might that he was convinced Jesus always had. Perhaps Judas wanted to force the hand of God precisely because he believed Jesus was God and had tremendous power at his disposal. Sadly, Judas miscalculated and in despair took his own life. You see, Jesus would never go the way of power, especially not in the way the world had understood and wielded it. Judas got it all wrong. Because the incarnation, the self-emptying of God, represented the death blow to power. And the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the final act in the drama whereby power, though it continued to wield its influence in the world and its allure among men, would have forever been defeated. Jesus, once and for all, nailed the world's pretensions to power on the wood of the cross. His death on the cross was the Father's final stamp in the saga, if you will, of power's demise. It was the ultimate affirmation that from here on, the way of the suffering servant is the only way. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, says Jesus. Judas, of course, wasn't the only one. Neither was Peter, the prince of the apostles. You know, an easy convert to Jesus' understanding of power or service. Peter would hear none of the suffering Christ, none of the suffering that Jesus told him that he was to endure. And he flat out rejected Jesus' offer to wash his feet. Peter probably thought it was unbecoming of the leader of a group to stoop down and wash 30 feet. But Jesus was clear about it, rebuking Peter in the Gospel of Matthew for putting an obstacle on his way and calling him Satan. He lays down in very clear terms for his disciples 
and for all his future followers, the way power was henceforth to be understood. Do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Service is the only Christian way of understanding power. There is no other way. We, on our part, however, have often reduced Christ's action, especially what we see on Holy Thursday, to a mere symbol. And so we sometimes forget how non-symbolic Jesus' action was and how literal his commandment to serve was. You see, service isn't a symbolic act done by a leader of the Christian community in order to recall Jesus' action 2,000 years ago. No, service isn't a symbol. Service isn't symbolic. Service is real. Service is literal. It's a literal act expected of a leader in a community, especially a Christian community, in order to continue Jesus' 2,000-year-old action, making it present in every age. Service is no afterthought. It's no icing on the cake. It's no mere sugar coating. Service is what we are, or at least what we ought to be as followers of Jesus. Service is the only language of power those who wish to follow in the footsteps of Christ ought to use because it is the only language Jesus himself employed. And self-effacement is the only acceptable response to the inevitable interpretation that the the world will give to the service that we render because it can't do otherwise. The world will call our service power. The world will call our service influence. The world will call our service importance. The world will call our service clout, popularity, fame, celebrity. And Jesus said no to all of these. At other times, it will entice us. And this is where uh, the enticements of power uh, are actually uh, very clever. It will entice us with a thought that has entered the minds of many well-meaning people. And what is that? That it's perfectly all right to seek power as long as we use it for good. I repeat that. It is perfectly all right to seek power as long as we use it for good. That's what the world will tell us. That's what the devil was telling Jesus in the desert. The unspoken idea is that it's better to have power than not. Because by having power, we can use it for doing good.
It's only a problem with that. You know, there's two films that, scenes in two films that sort of stand out in my head. One is from The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, of course, you know, uh, was a very devout <clears throat> Christian. And there's a particular, you know, all throughout the, 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 the film and all throughout the books, of course, there's this idea that, uh, you know, even the most well-intentioned characters, uh, even the, the good ones, the good characters in uh, the books and in the film, found themselves drawn to the idea that they could harness the power of the ring for good. But each time these individuals rejected it, and in the end, of course, we know how that ring of power uh, ends ended. It was, you know, was destroyed. You can't wield it. You can't control it. It will control you. There's another one. I'm not a, a really big uh, a Harry Potter fan, but you know my nieces and nephews. Uh, you know, they were big fans and my students, of course. And, you know, uh, I was prevailed upon at one point to, to try to watch, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Harry Potter films. I, I didn't do it in one go, but eventually I managed to get to the very end. Um, I, and I remember uh, very clearly there's one scene where, uh, what's the name of the character? Voldemort. Voldemort was finally defeated. And and, uh, and Harry Potter had the, the, the wand that was the most powerful wand that existed. The Elder Wand, I think it was called. And uh, so he was holding it with, and his two friends were there. And one of them said, imagine what we can do with this thing. Imagine what we can do with this thing. And for a brief moment there, you know, it was like there was this thought, I'm pretty sure, that went in their minds. Well, imagine... Well, good we can do with such awesome power. And then, and then, we see Harry breaking in half the most powerful of all wands that existed and then threw it away. Power corrupts. On rare occasions, perhaps, and with the rarest of men, it may fail to do so. But how many among us can withstand its corruptions? One's power becomes ours. And Jesus himself said a very clear no to it in the desert. And he did it even before he began his ministry. The temptation story of Jesus, as the theologian, as one theologian said, uh, totally unmasks the satanic temptations to use religion for the sake of utility, self-exaltation, and earthly power. And it reveals these temptations to be in direct opposition to the call <clears throat> of the suffering servant. We still have a long way to go in living out this new understanding of power which Jesus inaugurated, spoken in plain and simple language, the language of self-effacing service, a language that says, I serve, period. All power belongs to Christ alone. We have but to remind ourselves of what Paul and Barnabas did at Lystra when 
when those who saw them heal a cripple wanted to offer them gifts and sacrifices, you know, thinking that they were gods. Uh, the pair refused the adulation and the admiration, telling everyone that they were no different from them, and then pointing to God as the source of their good deed. Instead of calling attention to themselves, they refocused the attention of those that admired them towards the source of healing and power. The desire for power in whatever shape or form is a betrayal of Christ crucified. It's a betrayal of Christ who was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's a betrayal of Christ who washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. It's a betrayal of Christ who refused Satan's offer of power in the desert. For one who wishes to truly follow Jesus, there can be no justification for seeking it. You know, calling it responsibility doesn't work. Nor does saying that with power I can do more for the church or for people. And neither does declaring it as some have done to be a burden that one does not seek, but is merely placed on one's shoulder, make it more palatable. True discipleship consists in service. Minus the trappings of power, honor, prestige, celebrity, popularity, and fame. Incidentals, we call them. Well, then we can do away with them because they're just incidental. They don't belong to the substance and essence of what we are and what we're supposed to be doing anyway. There's only one kind of power that sits well with the Christ of the Gospels. Its name is service. It has no other. And so we must strive, therefore, to rid our minds of any possible qualification, modification, or personal interpretation of the message of Jesus who came to serve and not to be served. We must instead take the words Jesus spoke to his disciples as literally as possible and to take them to heart. You know, there are some instances in which we must simply allow the plain and simple voice of Scripture to speak to us with no attempt at dissembling, modification, qualification, or interpretation. Serve, Jesus says. We must take it literally. The admonition to serve as Jesus served is clearly one of those instances that we simply must take literally. Jesus' rejection of the devil's temptations in the desert is proof of that. One who seeks to follow with total fidelity in the footsteps of Christ must not only avoid actively seeking power and authority, he must not even think about it, especially not when he thinks of the service that he is meant to render.